This episode, I'm joined by philosopher Barry Allen to discuss his recently released book, Living in Time, The Philosophy of Henri Bergson. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Barry Allen, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. We are going to be discussing your recently published book, Living in Time, The Philosophy of Henri Bergson, which was published by Oxford University Press uh, 2023 this year, who, I should say, were kind enough to send me a copy of the book. So thanks very much to Oxford University Press. Um, but before we jump in with Bergson and your book, um, yeah, Barry, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and, and how it is you came to write a book about Bergson. Yes, I teach philosophy at a Canadian university, McMaster University in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, I back in graduate school, I was uh, I wrote a dissertation on Wittgenstein under Richard Rorty, uh, and then uh, he was able to persuade my current institution that I was able to teach continental philosophy, even though I had written on Wittgenstein. So I dutifully came here and started uh, immersing myself in continental philosophy. It wasn't entirely new to me, but I never had responsibility for teaching it. So I was uh, very busy reading uh, everything from Nietzsche and Heidegger to Derrida and Foucault. Uh, and I put off Deleuze because Deleuze doesn't really fit into this line of what we, in Anglophone, what we think of as continental philosophy. Uh because he's really uh, only people who never read him would think of assimilating him to Foucault, say, or to Derrida. Uh, and uh, therefore, I, uh, since I was working so hard to try to understand Nietzsche and Derrida and Foucault, I, I just found Deleuze really hard to understand to motivate. I didn't know what was behind it. So I just put it off. Uh, and uh, was very happy that way for several years until eventually I said that this is time that this is going to have to stop. So I'm going to have to try to find out what this Deleuze business is all about. So I began immersing myself in that. And of course, I found it extremely good. I, in fact, I think I probably have a higher opinion of Deleuze than I do of, say, Derrida. Uh, he's an extremely acute philosopher. He's just hard to understand. But reading uh, Deleuze, I I then began to observe the thread of Bergson that runs not only just the obvious titles like his book on Bergson, but once you once you begin to know what Bergson trails look like, you see it everywhere in his work. Uh, and so at that point, I decided, well, I better uh, find out about Bergson. And then the more I got into Bergson, the less I cared about Deleuze and just wanted to to really try to understand what Bergson was doing, because it seemed to me to be certainly at least as interesting and innovative as anything that Deleuze was doing. And so uh, that uh, started me and uh, the, the book was the result. Mm -hmm. I actually have a couple of questions um, just from that. I mean, before we really get into the to the waters of, of Bergson, I mean, one is um, what was the biggest because it's such a strange thing to go from uh, writing under Rorty to then go teach Continental. I mean, it's quite a big leap. I mean, what was the biggest uh, sh philosophical shock moving from analytic to Continental? Well, it it uh, I one one little bit of the story that I didn't mention is that my original plan had been to write a dissertation on Heidegger, uh, and this was much less shocking to me than it was to the Princeton faculty. They were absolutely freaked out by this because uh, nobody had ever in a million years had ever proposed such a thing to them. But uh, they uh, dutifully let me try it. And I went off to Germany and uh, 
spent a year uh, at the Free University of Berlin. This was Germany was still divided. This was the mid 1980s, uh, and uh, then learning about <clears throat> learning about Heidegger. I met a couple of his former students and talking about it. It began to dawn on me that it was really no way that I was ever going to write a dissertation that would be acceptable at Princeton on this topic. And uh, I had followed uh, Rorty's advice. He said, when you go to Germany, leave all your English books behind. Don't take a bunch of English language stuff with you. So the, the only book that I had brought with me was Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations in German. I figured I could always work on that. And so I uh, started uh, looking at that again. And of course, just before I'd left Princeton, one of the new biggest things that had exploded there was uh, Kripke's Wittgenstein interpretation. At the time, it was just brand new and everybody was really concerned about what are rules and what's rule following. And uh, so I began thinking about that. And I actually wrote the first draft of my Wittgenstein dissertation in the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin. Uh, so when I came back and was looking for jobs, it, it wasn't Rorty, it wasn't sheer fantasy on his part that I could teach continental philosophy <laughs> because I'd worked substantially on Wittgenstein or on Heidegger, uh, and that was a start, and it was. So, uh, uh, but it just means that I that I set aside all the Wittgenstein stuff and just immersed myself in a whole new set of questions. Ah, okay, I see, I see. And I mean, you mentioned you mentioned sort of delaying Deleuze, which um, a lot of a lot it's fairly common to delay Deleuze but you did also mention that you did it so maybe later on you can understand him I mean I asked the big question do you feel now that you do understand Deleuze uh, well I understand him a lot better uh I and in particular once I once I realized that this notion of continental philosophy is really just an anglophone invention mm -hmm. uh and it assimilates lots of people that the French or the Germans would never think of putting in the same pocket uh, I needed to appreciate why Deleuze was not a Heideggerian, why he was not a Deleuzean, or sorry, a Derridian, um, uh, and consequently had to read more of the things that he himself had been reading and were important to him, Bergson certainly being one. Uh, so I, you know, I mean, I've I've written a, uh, my my previous book, uh, Empiricisms, has an entire chapter on Deleuze, uh, realizing that Deleuze could call himself an empiricist. In, in Rorty's language, empiricism is just a completely, it's just a name for a horrible mistake. And the, uh, it took me a long time to, to get out of that trap and to try to begin asking myself the questions I was in that book. What really is empiricism? Uh, it's a lot more. I mean, if you listen to Rorty, it's just the story from Locke to Descartes, or from from Locke and Descartes to Kant. But in truth, there's a vastly denser, more variegated fabric uh, to empiricism. Uh, and I wanted to lay out all that background so I could say, in what sense, how is Deleuze an empiricist, and how is he not, or what does empiricism mean in this supercharged and very unfamiliar context? Uh, and I think that was certainly interesting and. Uh, I, I feel happy enough with my conclusions, such as they are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, that led you. That did lead you to our discussion today, which is which is Bergson. And um, I guess the place I wanted to begin with Bergson is, I mean, so your book. I, I will say that your book is split into um, four. Four, there's an introduction, a very short introduction, a conclusion, and then four four chapters. Um, and it's in a very 
um, sort of surprisingly, I guess, for people who've tried to tackle Bergson, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, it's like surprisingly accessible, like surprisingly erudite in the sense that Bergson is quite a slippery philosopher. It's, you know, there's a lot of, quite literally, a, a lot of flux and intermingling. And I think with Bergson, any point when you're trying to really hone down a definition you're there's a bit of trepidation i mean in relation to the philosophy itself and whether or not you agree perhaps we can get to but the the so the biographical aspects don't factor in as much in your book but i think there's just something to mention in the fact that bergson historically was basically a celebrity and fell from fell from grace so at a certain point in time you know he was this huge figure and um, then eventually he sort of falls away. And I mean, I'm just wondering your opinions as to this trajectory, why why you think that was. Uh, I wish I could really do justice to your question, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm not an intellectual historian, in particular not one about the ins and outs of subtle French changes of view. Uh, but my impression is that, that his fame was really the product of his public lectures once he was, uh, once he became, a, once he, Became a member of the uh, uh, of the French of the Academy uh, there, uh, and the public lectures became very very popular and fashionable, attracted huge audiences. Uh, but he his reputation didn't survive the First World War. By the end of the First World War, I think my impression is that French intellectuals were really just looking for something new and didn't want to return to the things that had made Bergson prominent before the war. Uh, they didn't really criticize him so much as they just felt that he was a kind of a wearisome language game that they didn't want to play anymore. Uh, and he was also a little bit discredited because he had been somewhat of a propagandist for the for the French during the war. I mean, he certainly didn't. He was an ambassador to the to the White House, for example, for the French government. Uh, and so uh, a, a, a new generation of French intellectuals were not really interested in reconnecting with something that seemed to them on the you know, on the on the backside of the war experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where, 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 I guess you know, reaching reaching backwards in time, where does uh, Berg's, where do Bergson's where does Bergson's philosophy begin? I mean, who are his key influences in building this? Um, in my own opinion, kind of quite a peculiar philosophy Bergson holds, but where does he begin? Yes, and he hides his sources very well. <laughs> uh, so you, you you really won't figure them out just by trying to read him, and look, certainly not by looking, going by his references, which pretty much almost ignores. Uh, and once again, I uh, you really should be asking a historian of French intellectual history, but uh, I do have an impression that one of the most important lines in which Bergson figures is one that has very little resonance for Anglophone readers. Anglophone readers, much of the work hasn't even been translated. It's only beginning to be appreciated. Now, that's the line that runs from Leibniz, the new essays on uh, human understanding, which is a book that Leibniz wrote in French, uh, initiating a dialogue with uh, English philosopher John Locke. Uh, and then this, the, the new essays gave rise to a kind of, to a, a minor line in French 19th century thought, from Maine de Biran to Felix Ravison. Uh, and Bergson comes at the end of that, inheriting primarily from Maine de Biran and Ravison. Uh, this is a line that is almost completely unknown in Anglophone philosophy. It's only just within the last couple of years that you know, Ravison and Maine de Biran have begun to be translated. Even. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I guess it's a, a question tangential to that. Do you, I mean, we haven't really, we're now about to tackle the philosophy, but is, is there perhaps something within Bergson's philosophy that you see as the reasons why, I mean, once again, this, I guess this is a, a historical question, but as to why there has been this sort of lack of, lack of popularity. I mean, you say that it hasn't been translated these influences. Do you see something in it where, you know, classically we have the, uh, split between Heraclitus and Parmenides like is there a perhaps a uh, do you see a reason why we might head towards one philosophy and there's a reason why uh, those philosophers that haven't been translated and Bergson's philosophies just just hasn't hasn't really stuck I mean I guess maybe a move through to existentialism was one as well but uh, I, I guess so and that the, the line that goes from Leibniz main de Biran to Ravasson is not if I can put it this way it's not exactly sexy the way that existentialism was or Heidegger. Uh, it's rather academic. It's kind of philosophy. I mean, it's still, you know, philosophers arguing. It's somewhat of a minor minor direction because Main de Biran was emphasizing uh, ideas about event and action and time that were difficult to reconcile with received ideas about substance. So it was an interesting innovation in metaphysics, but also a somewhat narrow one that uh, I guess uh, just not enough English readers were stimulated by it to uh, to uh, sustain interest in it. And then, of course, also for Bergson's book himself, there were, Bergson had, of course, lots of Anglican readers. His books were translated almost immediately. The translations, as it happens, were all very good. There's, despite all this re-interest in Bergson, nobody's suggesting we need to do the translations over again. Uh, Bergson had excellent English. His mother was English, and they always spoke and corresponded in English. So Bergson checked all of the translations, really first rate. But he doesn't refer to any of these sources. As I say, he hides his own sources very well. So if you're just an English reader reading English translations of Bergson, you, you, you'd never in a million years guess about Leibniz or Maine de Biran, and Ravisson would be just, just an unknown name to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if this, I mean, it's, this is a huge question to begin this, the talk of his philosophy. Is there a question for Bergson from these influences that you've, you've sort of found beneath the, is there a question that emerges for him that he, that, that it, his philosophy forms around, or would that be too restrictive for him? Oh, there definitely is. It's the question of time. Uh, it's the absolute centerpiece of everything. And, it, it, and uh, his, his great realization was understanding that uh, practically everything in philosophy is going to change its valence uh, once you have what he regards as a philosophically sophisticated understanding of time. So it's the absolute centerpiece, and, and all of his books are really just unfolding different dimensions of what he thinks he discovered when he started taking time seriously instead of just assuming that it could be handled the way that his own influences uh, had handled it traditionally, especially Herbert Spencer. So when we think of time, what is it to not take time seriously? Is that the notion of we can take a little piece of time and we can have it, separate it, and say that's that bit of time? Well, above all, it's what he calls spatialization. That is, it's assimilating time to space. Uh, there are different ways that you can do it, but it, but it amounts to, it amounts to, to treating time as if it were a spatial dimension, uh, as opposed to. Uh, a continuum of change. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess the, the difficult question from that is, what are the, what are the two, I guess, metaphysical or almost um, 
mental differences that come from treating time in those two different ways. So one of what happens when we do treat time as a as spatialized, as, as just a product of space. Uh, then we get uh, Western metaphysics from Parmenides to Hegel. Uh, we get the idea that, uh, that becoming is an accident, that being is timeless, uh, that, that the appearance of change is merely an appearance, that the, uh, uh, the very appearance of time, of time's passage, that these are all sheer phenomenal uh, artifacts. Uh, with no reality at all, that true reality is a changeless, eternal what is. Hmm. Is there any sympathy on Bergson's part in terms of like what we might consider a Parmenidean strain where he might say this is where we could have, you know, a, a strict being that is, that is stable, that is outside of becoming? Is there any point where he might hold to that? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> Uh, absolutely not. I, I mean, he tries to understand. It's not an arbitrary. So he tries to understand why it seemed so, why it pressed itself upon us. But it is, from his point of view, completely, completely m m mistaken. Uh, philosophically mistaken. It, it has certain, there are certain things that can be said in favor of it, but they're not philosophical reasons for, for taking it, uh, giving it credit. It's pretty uh i guess a question which would have a lot behind it but to how does he come to this conclusion that being is uh, is philosophically incorrect and that becoming is all things uh by uh the, the well the first step of, of the argument is to is to affirm the priority of becoming so the result of of that is that it means that anything that we call a being and consider that it's done with its becoming or it has become something and now that's finished, although it might change in the future, that these ideas, uh, although they have, a, they have a certain psychological and even a biological or evolutionary explanation, have no validity. Uh, that, uh, so that, that the only reality, extra personal reality is one of continuous becoming. And uh, there, and so being is always just an artifact of a point of view. Hmm. And then the ego plays a role as perhaps the thing which we seems like the illusion that holds that does seek to divide it, divide consciousness up, to divide this becoming up. And yet that would equally be part of the process as well, even though we we feel ourselves to have this solidified, I guess called like a being ego. You know, this thing which is is somehow whole throughout becoming is still completely. Uh, imminent to that whole process of becoming. Yes, and uh, ego, well, ego is a word he practically never uses, but he speaks of the moi, the me, the self. Uh, and this for him is really just a word for the corporeal or living body center. The living body is a center from which uh, um, uh, stimuli are received and actions go out. So stimuli come in, actions go out. The body is really just this functional center linking stimuli coming in and actions going back out. So it's a body that's just a, a center of uh, center of life activities, but it's it is it is, it is itself completely a, a processional quality. So there would be of course, no the, the big thing the big thing that's in the the big thing that's in the background is his assumption that that all life needs to 
solidify and act as if there were beings and as recognizable things. It's an adaptive action. Uh, and it's it's justified only in the sense that it's it's a good way to make to survive in a in a terrestrial environment. Uh, but as I say, it's a totally not a philosophical justification for an ontology of being. No, it does seem like a bit of a leap. I mean, I, I would ask where for Bergson does the agency for that solidification arise from? Uh, well, uh, from uh, from well, to what we could call the mind. Uh, uh, it it's a uh, a mind is a is a kind of a well to use his language a spiritual power. A power that is that is that has certain agency. That agency uh, drives it to do what it can to create an, uh, a, a body for the purpose of, of replication. Um, but that the only the only agency that he acknowledges is spiritual, and spiritual doesn't mean immaterial. I mean it implies immateriality, but it's not ghostly. It just means temporal. Temporal things are immaterial too. Time is not a body, and time doesn't doesn't generate bodies, although it might generate the appearance of bodies. Is it spiritual in relation to a godhead, into a you know, uh, no, atheistic? Uh, this is another place where anglophone presumptions uh, get in the way. Uh, uh, God is really just not one of his words. He, he he practically never uses the word or really says anything that's greatly <clears throat> philosophically or theologically much interesting. Um, he's much more interested in the spirit that he sees active in human beings. And he thinks that this spiritual dimension of humanity has a future, that it that it will continue to evolve or it may continue to evolve, doesn't have to. Uh, and if it were able to continue to evolve and evolve and evolve as far as it could go, it might eventually become something that we we would call a god or many gods. Doesn't have to be just one, but monotheistic, orthodox deity is really just just not a concept for him. He just has really nothing to say about it. So before we move through, because you mentioned evolution, so we'll get to that. But I just want to stick with just just where we've been for just one more question because so far and i think this is why i mean i remember when i first was reading books on this is why i was like felt like i was i don't know skating on skating on ice without skates right you're it's all this you know so far we've had becoming everything is becoming and being being in that sense is not anything to do with books on um and in this way there's this question of uh, if everything is becoming and then let's say something does change in time, which is a noticeable, I guess, dare I say, empirical change, like a building falling over. In our memory, we have this like change, but as we change, that memory is equally becoming with our other continual becoming. So all of this put together, what is it for Bergson to say, to to define, to say that is that is that an error on our part? Uh, on our part, in in like our attempts to control, to try retrieve something from becoming and capture it, you know, how can we begin to define if all is always moving? Uh, it's not an error in the sense that it you, you that if you're a living organism, you've got no choice. Uh, uh, but also that shows you the limit of it. 
that's all there is to it, is it's just simply an adaptive strategy uh, with, no, with no metaphysical truth whatsoever. Uh, and moreover, it's an adaptive strategy that will produce a different ontology for every organism that there is, uh, because you know octopuses aren't going to cut out the world the same way that that whales do or that mammals do. Um, but there's no objectively right or wrong about different ways of doing it. So uh, uh, being is really just a, um, a strongly perspectival solidification good for the life form that that utilizes it, but with no broader uh, reality. Well, what would it be for a human to not solidify, to not cut up reality? Is that, would that be a possibility? Uh, psychotic. It, psychotic. It's not a psychotic. It's, it's not a, you, nobody can live that. Be like, I mean, it just, the more you think about it, the more bizarre it would be. It, I mean, where, where would you lay down to go to bed? Well, there'd be no such thing as a bed, right? No such thing as bed. Uh, um, what would you eat? How would you move? Why would you wear shoes? Uh, it would just be total psychosis. Mm. So does freedom then come from, I don't know why I said that, but does does freedom for Bergson then come from perhaps uh, as as little fragmentation, as little limitation as uh, limitation as possible? Or is, is this sort of almost like, look, you just have to accept that and then work with it? But or is it, or is there a, you know you mentioned evolution from this acceptance of you have to grasp you have to cut how do you begin to move forward and where are we moving to? Um, well, I guess uh, there Bergson would be a bit of a dualist or a dichotomist. That is, uh, uh, if your question concerns how to get through the day, then you're gonna you're gonna make lots of posits and there's gonna be lots of beings and you're gonna be engaged with them. But if you uh, are, if you're setting all that aside and engaging in philosophy, then uh, the only truth is really the truth of, uh, of of temporality and of yourself as a, say, a spiritual that is a temporal being. Uh, there's not really any way to synthesize these philosophically. It's that uh, we understand. Um, we understand being as something that we're it's kind of a necessary error, necessary in the service of life. Um, but we understand that it would be a mistake to try to regard it as anything deeper than that and to try to build a philosophy that is a philosophical view of reality on that basis. Mm. What of the past then? Is the past real in the, in the, I mean, once again, I guess this is a Western presumption in terms of linear time. Uh, these these um, memories are simply memories and those things weren't in terms of becoming or? Well, let's look at it this way. The, the best way to understand real is effective. Mm -hmm. Something is real if it has effects. Uh, and in that way, memory is not, me memory is the past. Memories aren't pictures of the past. They aren't representations of the past. Memories are how the past remains effective. And the equation that I just said of real with effective means memories are the way the past is real. The past is real as remembered. And the future? Uh, wide open. Uh, it's not unlimited because Bergson doesn't believe in an infinite universe. So there are certain 
constraints upon it, but there's no certainly no determination because the whole idea of determination is one being pushing another being. Uh, and that's all just, he's completely instrumentalized that. That's just a useful way to think about things, but it has no deeper truth. So there's no deep truth about determinism and no inevitability for the future. The future instead will be, is really constantly being negotiated between all the different forces that in each instance are, are competing for, uh, for, for actual existence. And then the present isn't is the is the now simply not. Uh, it's it's just it, it's just where uh, where deter it's just where the where the effectiveness of the past has led to to the moment that you're beginning to think about it. Uh, and then, of course, as time goes on, it will continue to the past will remain effective in different ways, and therefore the present will always be changing because the past is always. There's always different. There's always more past, and its uh, and its uh, reality will be slightly different every time because the totality of time is it's how it is remembered and affected. It, it, the way you've spoken about it so far, it seems that for Bergson, humans don't play. You know, they're they're amidst everything else. They are just amidst becoming the same as everything else. I mean, so speaking of teleology and this notion of the spiritual, I mean, is there a teleology and does it concern us too much in terms of I guess the us is already a problem because of that defining aspect? Well, we we have uh we have certain powers that are not visible in the rest of nature, in particular language and technology. Uh, and these suggest to Bergson that we have certain possibilities of evolution that uh, other animals don't share. It gives us a possibility of moving into a future that's quite different from the animals, which he thinks of as just constantly repeating themselves, endlessly going through relatively unchanging cycles. Whereas humanity has, because of speech and technology, the possibility of, uh, of, of continuing the evolutionary movement. In fact, he thinks that the that evolution really won't continue. He thinks all the all the the power of evolution is now concentrated in humanity. In other words, if humanity doesn't evolve, evolution will basically just stop and it'll just start going in circles like it does with the other animals. So the human being is important in the sense that it has a, a possibility of evolution that is apparently closed to all other terrestrial life forms. And this excites Bergson a lot because he thinks that it it's a dramatic, it's a drama. It makes it makes the future dramatic, and it's dramatic precisely because although there's a possible future of human evolution, it's by no means guaranteed or mechanically or in any other way assured. It's a a, a real struggle. But uh, uh, I say that makes it dramatic for him. Mm. Could we opt out? Uh well, uh, yes, I suppose if we became, you know, sort of like, I don't know if you know a little story that Nietzsche uses at the beginning of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where he talks about the uh, people that, uh, you know, wonder who is this Zarathustra and what's he so excited about? And why does he calm down and take a pill? And, you know, uh, uh, you know why is he calling us to do these, these, these things? He, uh, Nietzsche calls these the last men, mm. lets the men. Uh, uh, let's dimension, uh, meaning that that they're just not going to go anywhere. They're just going to be turning in circles until they eventually expire and 
life goes out like a candle. Uh, Bergson would say that's definitely possible. I, it, it, it can't really appeal to anybody, I shouldn't think. Um, if, if it did, they would be so nihilistic that the disease is already done. But I, I suppose you could, if you wanted to try being completely nihilistic, one, one could. Why one would, but consciously give oneself over to, I guess, what Deleuze would call the eternal return of the same, right? Just go round and round in circles. Yeah, that's very bleak. I mean, mm. yes. And where? So where does? I mean, and this is like this mysterious concept, which I I always felt that um, academics were quite reluctant to touch upon, and in in Bergson's philosophy, it doesn't get as big of a look in as perhaps it should. But the Elan Vital, where does this fit in to this this? Philosophy. Yeah, uh, I th- I think that one of the reasons that Anglo readers have had a just an impossible time trying to understand this word is a lot of wrong anticipations. Uh, the simplest way to say to elucidate Elan Vital is to say first that life on Earth is is an event, a, t- a tendency. It's an event that happened about four and a half billion years ago. It started. And it continues today. It continues uh, uh, according to a certain tendency. So, it, so you first of all, you think life on Earth is one very large event tendency. Hmm. Elan Vital is a name for that tendency. It's a name for the tendency of life on Earth. That is, the assumption is that that all life itself is has a certain tendency. Is it directionality and impetus? Just saying that, that's Elan Vital. It's mm. just simply a name for the tendency of a comprehensive terrestrial event that we call the evolution of life. Some people often conflate it with sort of a spiritual force. I mean, that would be somewhat incorrect or? Uh, well, it's, it's just Anglophones reaching for grasping at straws. Uh, uh, if you read Bergson very carefully, you'll see he doesn't speak that way. But if you're trying to explain him to your undergraduates or to your neighbors, uh, you might reach for that because it's hard to contradict. Um, even people might even pretend they understand it. But force is strictly speaking a word from mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a word for an actual configuration. Elan vital is not an actual configuration; it's a tendency. Tendencies are virtual entities. They're not actual entities. They're not mechanical causes, but they're not mysteries because practically all events do have tendencies. That is, they're going in a certain direction. They have a certain, uh, a, a certain teleological tendency. <laughs> uh, and Elan uh, uh, Vital is the name for that tendency when, when we're speaking about uh, uh, vital events that is living organisms i don't i don't ask this i don't phrase it this way to be coy but i think it's perhaps an interesting one what is the tendencies tendency is it growth you know building yes. structure the increase of energy because it seems okay we have that original tendency which is like metaphorically behind things yes. behind this evolution that we've spoken about does that itself have you know building structure yes. is a common uh, well, you're 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 quite right. I mean, the question is perfectly appropriate. Uh, the the tendency of vital tendency is to uh, 
to incorporate as much of the matter in the universe as possible into life forms. In other words, the, tenden the overall tendency is to try to vitalize matter. In principle, all matter, that is, all the matter in the universe. Mm. That is the tendency. That doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it's the, it's the movement. It's the tendency of the movement of life. Mm -hmm. And how would this dif differ evolutionary, evolutionarily speaking? Because it's something really interesting that you point out in your book as Bergson as a third evolutionary thinker from instead of, or perhaps not instead of, but alongside Darwin and Lamarck. How does that vitalist tendency differ in evolutionary terms from those two? Uh, it's just even more teleological. Uh, Lamarck didn't really want to be a teleologist. Um, uh, uh, in his, his, his view of nature is basically mechanical, but he just thought that there were certain mechanical causes that went beyond those that Darwin would later identify. Uh, but Bergson is a more, is a real honest to God teleologist. That is, he thinks that evolution really is a teleological tendency working its way through the material universe. Uh, and that's a uh, way too metaphysical for even for, uh, for Lamarck, I mean, not even, I mean, Lamarck was a professional scientist and he, the last thing he wanted was to be people saying, oh, you're blurring the lines now and talking like a metaphysician. Uh, and so he didn't really develop this line. I, I don't think he wanted to develop it. He just thought that you need a kind of causation. Of course, he's writing before Darwin, but we're always reading him in the light of Darwin. He, he thought you needed more than what Darwin would give us in terms of causation for evolution. And then so for Bergson, at the end point of this teleology as is, is all the energy in the universe would be somehow within this same vitalist impulse, like collected together, or how is that understood? Uh, well, that, that bit's a little, that bit has to remain somewhat obscure, but it would be, a, it, it would be, the idea would be to try to make life as comprehensive as it possibly can be. In other words, to eliminate any trace of matter that wasn't wrapped up in, in, in organisms and their life. Whether that would be, whether that would ultimately be lots and lots of organisms, but maybe just very different from what we now are, whether it would just be one great big one, uh, these are things that I think Bergson doesn't really think it's profitable to try to guess about. The, the point that interests him is the directionality and not where it may or may not be ending. So the, the thing that there's a certain movement afoot and it's been afoot ever since life on Earth. And uh, the, the, the dramatic question is just how far and how long will it go? Mm. Could could we consciously, could we, could I, you know, wake up tomorrow and head out the door and say, right, I'm going to uh, help out the Bergsonian impulse and somehow consciously give myself over to this force? Or is it is it far more abstract than that? You know, is this, in terms of this teleology, it's interesting that human beings holding this uh, sort of unique position as that thing which now doesn't has the option to not just go around in circles. Could could one consciously give themselves over to this? Uh, yes, and uh, uh, he develops this in his um, uh, in his book uh, on uh, uh, open and closed. Uh, title is uh, the two sources of religion and morality. Uh, what what you would do is you would find yourself 
an organization, a political organization, for example, that is dedicated to what he calls the open society. That is a society that's not um, that's not closed upon itself. That's not racist or uh, um, well, basically racist, uh, and that uh, sees the great challenge of human existence as being to um, to open up society as far as as much as possible to bring in as many different forms of life as possible uh, under a type of government uh, liberalism as happens in his opinion uh, that uh, that it will encourage this kind of forward movement and uh, kind of spiritualization of life. So if you wanted to do what you describe, you couldn't do much on your own, but the thing to do would be to go out and find yourself a group of other people who are committed to a spiritual and dramatic conception of the future, who are committed to the opposition to racism and to everything that keeps society closed upon itself, uh, and are committed to trying to break down all the barriers that keep human beings separated and isolated, uh, and to try to to allow them to work together, which would be the first step to eventually transcending ourselves. So traditionalists are running in circles then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's really what tradition, that's what tradition is from a kind of an anthropological or ethnological point of view. Uh, yeah, that's uh, since um, uh, each generation is born, you know, as a kind of a blank slate. So if somebody isn't repeating, then that each generation would have to invent it all by itself. And that would be, I mean, that's not really feasible. Uh, so tradition is our name for the for what you need to repeat in order to be able to establish yourself as a moderately competent human being, among others, and to be able to, to do what you have to do to survive. But that's that's all it is, is it's just a survival mechanism, mm. really. I sense some haste here. Is there a time is there a time limit? Could we could we throw this opportunity away and just stay running in the in the same spot? Uh, uh, well that that would be Nietzsche's uh, last men, mm-hmm. and could, in the sense of, as far as logic is concerned, yes. I mean, mm-hmm. no, no, there's no logic isn't in the opposition, uh, and uh, if uh, the politics were particularly uh, gruesome, and uh, we had a couple of generations of gruesome politics where nobody cared anymore, and people were just trying to make sure that none of the outsiders got in where we were having a good time. Uh, we could forget all of our best parts and uh, you know, turn into those last men who really don't want to do anything more than simply take life easy and make it as pleasant as possible until we're finished. It's a it's a theoretical possibility. There's no nothing more than just luck and will and the determination of some people not to not to debase themselves in that way. I mean, the mere fact that you can consider it debasing, or that, as you and I were saying earlier, that it seems nihilistic, uh, that already shows that you know we don't we're not prepared to really take this as a promising avenue. But uh, other people might respond differently. Mm. And th- though I didn't want to comment too much on him in terms of your your own studies on Deleuze, what do you see as the key difference between Bergson and Deleuze's Bergson? Yeah, that's a that's a pretty difficult uh, question. Quite, quite, a, quite a tough one. Uh, because De, I mean, Deleuze doesn't really. Uh, I I I guess it would be something like 
read Bergson and then you'll take time seriously. And then once you take time seriously, then stop reading Bergson and read Deleuze. And I'll tell you what implications you should draw from that seriousness about time that won't be fully Bergson's uh, implications. For example, I mean, Bergson is, is much more politically speaking. He really is just a kind of a late 19th century liberal. He believes in a kind of liberal society, uh, uh, whereas Deleuze considers all of that completely bourgeois and utterly passe uh, and identifies, at least he says it, that he's, that he's a communist, which is something that Bergson would certainly never say. So it, it, it may be that at the level of metaphysics, there's not a huge difference between Deleuze and his conclusions in Bergson's, but the way they work out in terms of contemporary practice would be substantially different mm. i mean deleuze, deleuze is i mean you talk about the open and closed i mean deleuze maybe it's you know closed open and then schizophrenic in the in the deleuzean sense right the real explosion of um openness almost too much perhaps too much openness when you get through to something like anti-oedipus uh well yes although i i would think that so long as it's not destructive mm. uh it's it's just Unfolding even more possibilities, or getting rid of getting rid of a raft of um, of hesitations uh, that we have inherited, and instead letting instead of instead of I mean, so the, the mere fact that someone is psychotic no longer becomes a reason not to listen to them anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Bergson never dream. I mean, it's hard to imagine Bergson ever dreaming of saying such a thing. But it's not a it's not an impossible. Uh, uh, reading of what an open society would be. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a question here. I can actually see from from your video. I can see your uh, uh, is that karate belts, or I, I can't recognize the belts exactly. Uh, well, it's uh, it's actually the Chinese on there says hapkido, or the Chinese oh. translation of the Korean hapkido. Is that it's is that black belt? Black belt. Uh, it's a third degree black belt in the Korean art called hapkido. Is that I'm assuming I'm going to assume that's your primary martial art? Uh, well, it was until COVID, ah. and COVID put a great big dent in that because if there's one, the only when you practice martial arts, when you train martial arts, you are in another person's face, big, mm-hmm. and so if you're sensitive about maybe getting a little spittle on your lips, uh, then it's just not the right thing for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, COVID came, everything just had to close. Uh, the, the place where I had been training, the, the master tried after about 18 months, said, maybe we can get this going. So we'll have some kind of training, but we'll stand six feet apart. And I'll just move my arms this way and say, now you 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 move your arms that way too, but we won't touch. Uh, and I just said, I, I just don't want to train them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand that there's no alternative, even legally. But I, I don't want to train that. Mm-hmm. And so I said that uh, then, therefore, after 17 years, I so retire. So in relation to Bergson, would you say the vitalism had been? Because the question was, I mean, is there an overlap between, because I know you've written uh, you've written a book on the philosophy of Asian martial arts. Is, is there an overlap between, I guess, your personal study of martial arts or personal, personal practice of martial arts and study and, and the philosophy of Bergson? Well, not a not a big one, but just that uh, Bergson certainly provides a an, um, set of concepts and motivations for thinking about the body in action, 
which are very different from anything that Anglo tradition has. So if you're thinking about, if you're trying to think philosophically about martial arts, then one thing you're, I mean, practically the main thing you're going to be thinking about is how does the body move? How, uh, how can move, what's involved in learning movement, teaching movement? Uh, how do movements become effective? And uh, what is, what is learning movement? These kind of questions uh, Bergson is very interested in and his work provides ways of thinking about it uh, that are, that certainly can be valuable for martial arts uh, study from the philosophy of martial arts, but uh, there are other things too. I mean, phenomenology, phenomenology of action is equally uh, good. In this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, perhaps if you're, if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you another time about your book on martial arts, if, if you'd be up for that. But one, uh, one final question here. I mean, I, well, a couple of final questions, but one is, I mean, you mentioned you sort of drew this in at the start and it's been recurrent throughout our conversation. I've noticed this this struggle with when you mentioned something from Bergson, you have to sort of say, well, the the Western mind would, would jump to this conclusion. And what do you... The Anglophone mind. Anglo, sorry, Anglo, Anglophone mind would, would jump to a certain conclusion. And what what do you think the kernel, if there is one, of the Anglophone thought that just sort of keeps trying to put a wall down or just doesn't really allow itself to to fall into Bergson's philosophy properly? Uh, it may be partly uh, suspicion about time. That that is that really is Western, not Anglophone. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since the, the beginning of, uh, of philosophy in the in in the West, uh, time has been has been shunted aside, or there've been efforts to try to explain it away, or make it disappear, or treat it as space. Uh, and English Anglophone philosophy uh, inherits that without really even much thought about it. Uh, and uh, the other is a certain Anglophone suspicion about immateriality that the only that if you're immaterial it must be because you think that there's a substance that's immaterial a ghostly substance an immaterial substance bergson is interested in in immaterial reality but not immaterial substance Mm. and immaterial it suddenly doesn't sound so spooky anymore when you realize it's just time I mean, a, a passage of time, a, you know, a duration of time. There's no matter there, or there, or if there is, it's not the same as the time. So time is inherently immaterial. That is, it's not any material substance or, or existence. Uh, uh, Anglophone philosophy has had practically no motivation to try to think these things, and when they appear in Bergson, they just seem alien and hard to understand. And so Anglophone philosophers tend to, to simply reach for jokes and dismiss it. Uh, so there's been very little effort on the part of Anglophone philosophers to, to, to really try to say, look, what, you know, what really is this? I mean, there have been some scholarship about Bergson. I don't mean to say there hasn't, but it's, but it's never been mainstream. And it certainly never got into the principal arguments that have, that have been the meat and butter of academic, especially analytic philosophy in the Anglophone tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, where would you advise people to begin with Bergson's <laughs> primary work? I mean, secondary sources, I'll say it, I would advise people to begin with your book, Living in Time, because I think it's a fantastic introduction to Bergson's work. But as for his primary source uh, work, his own work, where would you advise people to begin? Well, uh, one thing to remember is that the translations are trustworthy and really very good. Uh, Another thing to remember is that Bergson 
is not going to make a lot of assumptions that you will have been trained to make if you're reading Anglophone philosophy. So you have to you have to sort of know that you're reading someone who's not thinking the way that you're accustomed to if you're used to if you've been studying English speaking philosophy. Uh, in terms of where to start, I mean, all, all of the books have the, the books are all of them are in some way disarming clear. Because you, you read along, you think, well, I'm understanding this, and there's no words that are really that alien to me. But if you stop after, say, 50 or 60 pages and say, what have I just been reading? <laughs> uh, it can be pretty hard to paraphrase. And uh, each of the books is difficult in its different own way from that point of view. Uh, for example, uh, 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 Time and Free Will uh, that incidentally was a title that Bergson himself, an English title Bergson himself made up. His French, the French version has got a completely different title. It just, I don't even know what it is in French. It's an, an essay on something. Uh, but the, the book begins with a very long discussion about the, about 19th century psychology, about inner mental states. Uh, and you have to kind of be willing to play along with that or pretend that you're interested in it, or at least, you know, you're struggling with it. Cause he cites, I mean, he's citing tons of literature. He's not making this up, but it's just psychology of a, a much earlier day. Uh, but the conclusions that he'll gradually move to are philosophically quite rich and provocative, but you just have to have patience. You can say the same thing about, um, about memory and uh, matter and memory although it's a different set of problems. But again, you have to be patient and let him talk a lot about 19th century physiology, understandings of the moving body in French psychology. But if you'll bear with him, eventually he'll get to some pretty meaty conclusions. Uh, a lot of people probably start with Creative Evolution just because it's his most famous book. Mm. And, you know, possibly, I mean, since, you know, he's never going to write really pedagogical. So he's never going to say, okay, let's begin with this one really clear thing and sort of gradually put it together. That's for books like mine to try to do, but not his. Uh, so I think the, the truth is that it doesn't greatly matter where you start. And some people, for example, my teacher, Richard Rorty, he read all of Bergson's books, thought they were absolutely intolerable and completely <laughs> just beyond the pale, except for the two essays on religion and morality, which he actually quite liked. Now, I don't really understand how somebody could like that book and not like, or at least not understand all the other stuff, because I think they're pretty intimately connected. But he evidently felt that you could make a fairly sharp line between them and he could enjoy the one and hate the rest. Uh, so I would say that it, it, it truly doesn't matter where you start, so long as you're willing to be patient and eventually at least try to read the first three. That is time and free will, matter and memory, and creative evolution. Okay, okay. Is there anything you'd like to add about uh, your own book that you feel we haven't touched upon that is that is key? Uh, no, not really. I, I'm very generous, uh, and uh, so I, I, I hope there's something in it for everybody. Mm -hmm. What are you working on now? Uh, right now, I'm... Uh, two projects going. One is just a little project, but I, I agreed to write something. There's a book coming out on uh, Richard Rorty's book, Flossing the Mirror of Nature, will soon be reaching its 50th anniversary. And Cambridge University Press is having a series of uh, Flossing the Mirror of Nature at 50. And there's a lot of other books. There's Rawls at 50, etc. 
Uh, and uh, the editor asked me to write something about philosophy in the mirror of nature and Wittgenstein. So I've been going back. This is stuff I haven't looked at in 20 <laughs> years or more, but I've been going back and trying to remind myself about what was involved in that. It's been somewhat interesting. I mean, I, it's been a long time since I really thought uh, newly and freshly about uh, Richard Rorty's work. Uh, but that's just a kind of a side project. The really big thing that I'm working on now is uh, an effort to try to synthesize or bring together a conversation between uh, professional philosophy and Native American traditions and Native American thought, Indians. Uh, uh, so, I mean, there are many different sides to it, but it's an attempt to try to, to bring together the traditions and culture uh, uh, of North American indigenous peoples with Western philosophy, themes from Western mm. philosophy. Sounds fascinating. Sounds fascinating. When will when, that, that's going to be a full book? Uh, well, uh, that's the plan. I have it's in various forms of draft. I uh, have I'm, I, I've sent a little bit of it out to, in dribblets to some of the journals and had various kinds of responses. But eventually, it will certainly be a book. That's my plan. Okay. Well, hopefully, when that's published, I'll get back in contact with you and talk about that. Well, I hope you're still in business. Oh, I, I hope so too. Um, but I'll be sure to put the links for Living in Time in the description below. And um, But other than that, Barry Allen, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks very much. Well, thanks very much for your time.